Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. Uh, we record today's episode on the morning of the Victorian state election, where Everald's friends in the uh, Victorian religious right seek to uh, slay the evil dictator Dan and free the good people of Victoria from his crushing communist regime. How are you, Ev? Well, I'm fine, mate, and it's good to see you. And it's good to start off from the Victorian election, did you? Right, that the true that the Christian right have been making uh, uh, goats of themselves, and uh, which they tend to do everywhere they go, I might say. They're not doing the Christian cause the slightest uh, bit of good. They're, they're offending mainstream Christians. Forget about the, the left and whatever. They're offending mainstream Christians. But my, my reading on the Victorian elections is that Dan Andrews is going to win. I think the only issue is, will he have a majority government or not? But he'd only fail to have a majority if the Greens pick up some seats. Now, the Liberals have been preferencing the Greens in certain seats in the hopes that the Greens will roll in a Labor. Now, when you get Liberals preferencing Greens, you've got to ask yourself, you know, one or two fundamental questions about where they're coming from. But there could be some Greens elected, but I don't think that Matthew Guy is going to pick up very many seats in his own right. And in fact, Simon Holmes, the court, seems to believe that some of his peers will knock off uh, some of Guy's seats now. Uh, uh, how do you see it? I think if I'm thinking uh, cynically, the reason I'd say the Liberals will be preferencing the Greens is they figure if they can lock Labor into a Labor Greens minority government for three years, for four years, then they can do what the federal Liberals did and, you know, run the next election campaign on, oh, this is the Labor Greens pack. Yeah, you can't trust the Greens. The Greens are controlling Labor and kick Labor out for three terms like the federal Liberals did after Julia Gillard's minority government. Um, I think you might be right, though, that like, because think of those seats in, in Melbourne, right? Like we had Goldstein and Kuyong go to Teal Independence in the federal election and Simon Holmes supporters, um, you know, and Climate 200 and some really incredible um, women in their own right have re-upped and they're fighting the good fight on the ground again to knock off some uh, liberal incumbents in wealthier. It's, it's the same story, right? You've got a, a state liberal party there controlled by um, the white male old school religious right um, who want to control women's bodies and who are at least open to things like gay conversion therapy and all these anachronisms from the 1920s. Um, and then Simon Holmes Accord, Climate 200, um, strong independent women say, you know, we don't want this. We want the, the third path. So there could be a couple of teal pickups in this election. Uh, and Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel, the two federal teal representatives from down there, have done an excellent job in Parliament so far. So we've seen like because one of the big knocks on the teals during the federal election was, you know, these people aren't politicians. Why are they going to run around like headless chooks when they get to Canberra? But we've seen for six months that's not true. So if anything, if I was a teal voter yeah. in the federal election, I'd feel great about going and doing it again. Well, you're quite right. They have been performing well. Now, I can't for the life of me see Matthew Guy having any chance of winning. The Nerdog <laughs> Media tried to indicate you know, that would happen. And I think it was desperation of, of politics. It's either Dan by a majority or Dan and the Greens and, or maybe Dan and the Teals if it comes to that. The, the Teals would be responsible if they, you know, were sustaining a 
uh, in our government. But what worried me about the Murdoch media in particular, and there were some other lunatics involved too, is the way they tried to give Dan Andrews over ridiculous personal matters, such mm. as a car accident that happened a long time ago and, 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 and all sorts of other sins he was supposed to was he drunk when he fell down the steps and, and broke his back and and there was even one I saw on Twitter where said they had definite evidence that Dan Andrews' wife's favorite coffee partner is a woman who's got several traffic tickets for speeding and therefore Dan Andrews' right was what is fraternizing with criminals. Now you can't get much more stupid than that, can you? Yeah, I, I think that the craziest one I saw, and I don't remember which publication it appeared in, but it was not a publication of repute, let me tell you, was an article talking about how, um, like, Dan Andrews, if he wins, will have the power to unilaterally force your children to change genders. I didn't know Dan Andrews was a wizard, but apparently winning this election will give him, you know, magical powers that no law can constrain. And, and the problem is, like, the Andrews government isn't perfect. Um, you know, they've been involved with some somewhat scandalous destruction of Indigenous sites for projects. Um, there is a cost of living crisis in Victoria. They were the most locked down city in the world because their health system currently isn't up to snuff. There are things to criticise the Andrews government for. Um, and I, you know, I, probably, I would never vote for the Liberals um, regardless because the Liberals are never a better alternative to my mind, the modern day Liberals at least. Um, but the, there's been no real ability to engage um, in mainstream substantive criticism of the Andrews government because all the criticism of Andrews has been the like the wacky stuff from the, like the anti-vaxxers and the cookers and the Dan Andrews's wife's friend has traffic tickets people. So there's really been no scope this election, I think, for like a serious uh, re-evaluation of the, um, the Andrews government's past eight years. Well, sure, and, and I, I'm hoping, look, I think Dan Andrews, and, and as you say, he's made his share of mistakes, and in many ways, he's a um, dictator. Dan is a reasonable title for some of the ways he does, but the whole fact of the matter are he's led Victoria through some pretty dark times, and he's yes. opposition. I don't time. believe that Matthew Guy has got the ability to be the Premier, full stop, and I think that, you know, you've got to look at the pragmatic side of it. What I'm hoping tonight is that some independents will win seats so to prove that the independents winning in the federal election wasn't a fluke and, and it would be actually nice if an independent not just took some liberal seats but actually took a seat or two off Dan I don't know where that might be but it would even up the ledger a bit if it did you know in in, in that regard so I, oh, I'll, I'll look tonight with uh, uh, interested to what happened because it also will lead on to what's going to happen to the Perrottet government in New South Wales mm. next, uh, you know, next month. But I hope more and more independents win because the independents in federal parliament, as you say, have performed very sensibly and admirably. They have not been political children the way uh, the Murdoch media and the Liberals tried to proclaim them to be. So I think. Uh, It'll be an interesting uh, night, and we can pontificate about that uh, about that next week. Well, why don't we move on to our old mate uh, Scott Morrison? Now, you said the Christian right fellows in Victoria were mates of mine. I mean, I really could set you up, James, by saying, "Look, <laughs> you live in Sydney with Scott Morrison, and therefore he's a 
he's, he's, he's a mate of yours, and that would be an absolute lie in the extreme. But, you know, there's this fella, and there's this, and Bell, the, the justice that did the review. Uh, she came out with a scathing report on Morrison, but I don't think it was scathing enough. I mean, in my view, she should have recommended that he be put on trial for something or other, because what he did, in my view, was a, a blatant grab for power for which he didn't even consult his own colleagues. And, and as Josh Frydenberg has reported in the media, uh, you know, this week he feels very let down. Now, I know that personally because Josh is a friend of mine. He told me that he was loyal to Morrison utterly to his own political cost because I think that cost him his seat. He's loyal. But Josh is a loyal sort of bloke. You're a mate of Josh, you're loyal. He felt enormously let down by that, as he should. Uh, you know, in, in, in doing so. Now, but I, so I think uh, Justice Bell was very lenient on Morrison. I think she should have hit him harder. Now, you're my legal advisor, mate. What do you reckon? Um, well, this this is something I was a, a while ago, and I don't remember the context in which I was talking to a friend about this, but he was telling me about how, like, in a in a democracy, it it's sometimes healthier to um not paper over certain things but there are certain lies we need to tell ourselves in like a two-party democracy to make sure that um the system of government still runs smoothly um and he basically said that one of those lies was like when something like this comes up um where, where we essentially had a prime minister unilaterally take over five portfolios um and exposes one of the weaknesses in our democracy um, there's almost a, a danger in being too hard to tackle it in that if we really do call it what it is, it might expose that our system of government is not as rock solid as we think. And I wasn't really convinced by that argument, I must say, because I sort of thought like, well, we, we need to call this stuff out um, when it happens. But I, I, I do see where he's coming from, the sort of argument being like Scott Morrison was a prime minister elected under the Australian electoral system um, fairly and legitimately and that our electoral system was able to produce a prime minister who was willing to do that um, and we have a very fair electoral system but the fact that our electoral system was able to democratically elect a prime minister who turned out to try to unilaterally become the dictator like that you know what does that say <laughs> about our system it's not a very good sign I think um, on your point, Reef Frydenberg, um, Karen Andrews as well came out and basically said this week, former Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews, that is, that if they had known about it when it happened, they there would have been a leadership spill, you know, straight off the bat. And uh, your your friend Josh probably would have been the beneficiary there because, like you say, he was loyal to Morrison to a fault. But I imagine that loyalty would have run out if he'd found out earlier that Morrison secretly appointed himself to the Treasury portfolio. So yeah, true. And look, it's, it's a sad thing. Two things arise out of it. Well, let's finish with Morrison. Then I want to get on to the Governor General, our current Governor mm. General, all that. Uh, Morrison, I went on Twitter this morning, and you can read it when you get a chance to say Morrison is the worst Prime Minister Australia has ever had since 1901. Without doubt, he. He's the worst, but he's won by the length of the straight, you know, in uh, you know, in doing you know, in doing that. And and uh, and I actually asked 
said that all the people who voted for Morrison in 2019 owe an apology to the rest of Australia for putting him there now. That won't get me too many friends. But there were so many people who were down on Bill Shorten for utter fabricated reasons, like they're running around with Dan Andrews about in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And let me say that Bill Shorten is a practising Catholic who doesn't get around parading that point around. He's a far better Christian than Morrison, but he was hammered in 2019 for not being a Christian, but he didn't bother to, to, to defend himself on that issue. So, I mean, Morrison has been a bad prime minister and we must never have a prime minister like him again. How do you feel? Uh, look, I'm, I'm inclined to absolutely agree. I, I have a friend who calls Bill Shorten the best prime minister we never had. And just with like thinking back, uh, it makes me so mad because that 2019 Labor policy agenda was so transformative. Um, like you'd have to say personally, um, as, as individuals, Albanese comes from, you know, the left faction of the Labor Party, Bill Shorten from the right faction of the Labor Party. But that Bill Shorten 2019 policy platform was a really progressive, modern um, platform. It's, it's kind of funny in a way that, um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't see, say, the teal independence if Shorten got elected in 2019 because we wouldn't have had three years of like a horribly backwards thinking misogynistic government that necessitated the big women's revolution that we saw in politics with the teal independence. So in some ways, well, in, in every way, really, the, um, the Liberals only have themselves to blame for the corner they're in now because they pushed all their chips into the middle of the table with Scott Morrison. And they, it, it, it's looking like nationwide, you know, given what may well happen to the uh, Victorian Liberals today, uh, they might well go bust. We could see, <laughs> you, you mentioned before, sorry, the, um, the 2023 incoming New South Wales state election. And if Dan Andrews holds on today, and Dom goes down in March 2023, the entire mainland at state and federal level will be run by the Labor Party. And that hasn't happened for a, you know, a, a long time. But let's get on to the Governor-General. I believe that he must resign because he allowed Morrison to do that without asking fundamental questions. Now, I know we got this thing that the Governor-General is supposed to take advice from the Prime Minister, but there are governors general going with just a governor in Queensland here. The last governor was Justice Paul De Jersey, the Supreme Court Justice of the High, our Chief Justice for a long time became the governor. Good friend of mine, I've been, was invited up to government house regularly and he served jolly good Scotch whiskey, I can tell you. Now, he told me that every time they came to him with papers for him to sign, if he didn't feel that they had justified what they wanted him to sign by providing him with evidence as to what the background of this was that he had to sign. He would say, can I please have an answer to this before he would sign. Now, he was never going to knock the government back, but he let them know that they could not put a bit of paper in front of him without some justification, you know, of, of, of something or other. And he was a jolly good And in the end, the government knew that if they sent a paper up to government house, they better have the whole box and dice of the background of this, otherwise the Governor General is going to, the Governor is going to send it back. Now, now we need governors like that, don't we? I mean, uh, it might be declaring, you know, I got, I got to declare myself a position of bias here as a future lawyer, but I think, like, realistically, the Governor General is a role created by Chapter 2 of the Constitution. The Governor General's role is a legal and an administrative role. 
and to be the governor general, um, realistically to properly discharge those duties, uh, you need a thorough and fulsome understanding of constitutional law, constitutional responsibility and the federal structure of our Australian government. Now, this isn't to say no one from other walks of life can't have that understanding, but to me, uh, retired judges should be the instant pick for that role because they are the ones who know, you know, how the constitution works, how the federalised Australian system of government works. They're the ones who have studied, poured over the history of, you know, 120 years of Australian constitutional law and Australian government constitutional challenges and decisions and whatnot, and the ones who know how legally this federal structure of government is to be performed. Now, like you say, Paul de Jersey, former Chief Justice, we've had a lot of former judges be um, Governor Generals, like uh, well, the Margaret Beasley, current Governor of New South Wales, former well, President I, of the I, I, I was actually way back in mm-hmm. 1930, the first, the first non-Brit, the first Aussie to become, he, he was a judge. And so look, I, I think that if, if, if the Governor General's got any sense of decency now, he's got to resign. And uh, I know that Albo is not going to force him to resign. Albo's not that sort of bloke. But if the governor general's got any decency, sense of honesty, or he'll go. And and mm. what do you think he'll walk or not? Um, I, I, like I said, I think he should. But the fact that he's still around now doesn't exactly fill me with confidence um, as to whether or not he will. And I mean, you know, they they do take their role very seriously. I think it is like a a tough decision to fall on your sword in that situation. But you've got to want your de facto head of state making tough decisions, right? Like he, he's there, David Hurley, Governor General David Hurley, as an esteemed military man. He should be someone with the mental courage and fortitude to be able to make those tough calls, right? That's the whole point of him being put there. So that's true. And so it's all, it's all a bit sadder in this situation. Now, just look at the parliament. I uh, was there this week for three days. I had 29 meetings, some lasted only 10 minutes, but some half an hour and a few an hour uh, with ministers and backbenchers and the opposition and the Greens and the independents on some issues that uh, that I thought were important and I got a good hearing. Nobody knocked me back uh, to see me and and uh, I got a good sense going around Palmwood. Now, look, the two things are obvious. The previous parliament under Morrison and to a degree under under Turnbull and Abbott, they were all about power and holding power and exercising power. There is no sense of that in this current problem. I'm not romancing. There is an attitude of let's get a few things done. Forget about power and who's knocking who around and who's in charge and you know who ought to be demoted or you know whatever. There is a sense around the parliament that this is a parliament that's going to achieve things, not just elbow. The Greens want to be seen to achieving things because they're not going to get rid. The Independents want to be seen to be achieving things. The Liberal National Party doesn't seem to be. They just sit there looking bewildered, uh, you know, in, in the whole the whole situation. But there's a, a very different attitude abroad in the Parliament, and I, I was quite refreshed by that. Well, that's that that's good to hear because yeah, that the Parliament. Um, you know, during the um, Morrison years and even before that was not necessarily a place of um, earnest meetings of the mind. 
It was not a place of, you know, mutual willingness to try to make this country a better place. Uh, and I think a lot of people realise that eventually come, come May this year and spirited the Liberals out. But by the same token, 47.5% of the country didn't realise that. Uh, hence, we still have, what, 56 sitting members of the Liberal National Coalition in the lower house and another 30-odd in the Senate. Um, you're, so you went around. Um, who do you think your, your favourite your favorite meeting was with, your most productive, uh, most productive chat? Oh, well, that's a, that, that's a good question. I had some productive meeting. Jim Chalmers, as usual, when you go to Jim about matters, uh, whether they're financial or political or what have you, you're dealing with an intelligent bloke who's looking to get things done, and that's always refreshing. Bill Shorten is still a guy who wants to help get things happen, and I always enjoy, uh, you know, I always enjoy meeting with him and with Tanya Plibersek, who uh, is uh, a, a very, very talented person who I had hoped one day might be the Prime Minister. But uh, I, I was talking to her about matters relating to the environment and uh, for a whole range of reasons and she's right across that portfolio you know extraordinarily uh, you know well indeed and uh, had a very good chat with Madeline King from Western Australia who's the Minister for Northern Australia which is an area that's been neglected in Australian life ever since the Federation and uh, she is trying to make a difference and so uh, you know it, it was uh, the thing that not worried me, sat me in Parliament is, I, I, everyone I went to, no matter what I was there for primarily, I raised the question of the voices referendum with them and say, how, how do you go? And I did this with ALP, Liberals, Nationals, Greens, Independents, the whole lot, asked them objective opinion. I got the clear opinion that the voice referendum is in trouble, that it may not win. Now, that, that hurts me uh, because uh, I intend to vote yes. Uh, and I intend to campaign for a yes vote. But my, my belief at the moment is that the polls are showing that most Australians want it, but that's a very soft vote. Most people around the parliament, no matter what colour they were, believe that the voice referendum is in trouble. And, and it'll lose on, on a fact. It may win a majority of votes, because I think New South Wales and Victoria will vote solidly yes. So I think it'll get a majority of votes is lose on the states. I am utterly convinced that Queensland, Western Australia and Tasmania are going to vote no. And that was because the Constitution says you must have a majority of states. That means four out of six. Now, I think this can be turned around, and I intend to put a big effort in to turn it around, but it is in trouble. Are you sensing that out in the community? Well, one thing that I found promising this week was that um, they, there was some other poll released and um, about whether or not the poll question was, it was a pretty broad question. Do you think Australia is a racist country? 57% um, of Indigenous Australians said yes, but also 42% of non-Indigenous Australians said yes. And to my, I know 42 is not a majority, but to my mind, that was promising because like to say that Australia is a racist country is a very um, high level statement. Like, you, there, there will be people who can believe in the voice referendum without going as far as saying Australia is a racist country. So if you've already got 42% of the people locked in that the country is structurally racist, 
that's 42% of the country who I think will be close to being very solid yes voters. And then there's a lot of room there for people who may not think the country as a whole is structurally racist, but still think that the voice referendum is important for reconciliation purposes. So I think there might be, um, I don't know, maybe it's because people have sort of enlightened themselves a little bit after reflecting on the past sort of nine years of Liberal government and what that's done to the country and looked back on those Morrison, Turnbull, Abbott years and looked back on stuff like the rise of the Teals, for example, for women's rights and those sorts of structural challenges and thought, hey, you know, maybe this country isn't as perfect for everyone as I first thought. Um, but I think there is some some promising, at least, signs that maybe people well, are... I, I hope that it's going to win, but let me tell you a fact that it was expressed to me by, by people on all sides of the House. The Liberal Nationals, as the chief opposition, uh, uh, believe that Albo is going to do them over in the Parliament consistently for three years with all sorts of reforming legislation, even if one or two of Albo's mates ratted on him in the Parliament, the Greens would back him and some of the Teals would back him. So Albo's not going to lose any votes in the Parliament. Uh, uh, you know, and that's the only way, the only way that they can do Albo over on anything in this term of government is to do him over in the voice referendum. But they, if they can get a no vote, they can, they believe that will humiliate Albo. And they're going to, a lot of them are going to vote no, encourage the no vote simply because, not because they don't think there ought to be a voice or they think, well, no matter what they're it's a way to inflict a defeat on Albo. And that's the way politics works, isn't it? Mm. And I mean, that's what I, I, you know, talking about before when I was talking about the Morrison thing, my friend who said, like, there are those lies we tell ourselves to keep the two-party system intact. Like, realistically, that reflects like such a lack of principle on the part of those members that they're willing to put partisan goals above uh, what's best for the country and even what they might believe in. Um, but such is the nature of party politics, right? It's And I mean, you rail against party politics on the regular, and this is a great example of why, am I right? Well, exactly right. And see what's happening. Look, we're starting to run about out, run out of a half an hour, Jan. So we'd better get in, into good guys and bad guys. Uh, my good guy for the week is Tanya Pribasek. I met before. I had a good meeting with Tanya. Well, to get the environmental portfolio in any government is almost a poison chalice, chalice because you've got to finally give approval for coal mines and things that affect the Barrier Reef and things that affect water and you know, and it's totally different to the climate change legislation, which is Chris Bowen. Now, Tanya Plibersek's got 40 or 50. She told me highly controversial decisions she's got to make, and, and she's going to make those decisions. See, she's not a coward, but it doesn't matter which way she goes, she'll get hit by somebody. There's not going to be any unanimous opinion. So she has to go to work every day and say, okay, I'm going to approve this one or I'm going to disapprove it. And I'm going to get hit in the teeth by the end of the day. But, but she, she goes ahead with doing that. And I think she's a very responsible person to have in that uh, portfolio. And I hold her in high respect. And I was good this week that she got up in Parliament when the statement came out about Rio Tinto knocking over that sacred site in Western Australia. You remember that? Uh, mm -hmm. And the report came out today 
saying that while it was legal, it was dreadful, and, and Tanya is now introducing legislation to make sure they cut the loophole that that can't happen again. But that was one of the dark blocks on the Australia that is just knocking down a sacred site so they could get a bit of iron ore. Awful stuff. But anyway, Tanya's going to fix that. So she's my number one for the week. I like it. I like it. Uh, my good guy of the week, and I suppose good guy might be a, a bit of a stretch of an expression here, but um, look, we, we talked before about, you know, whether the Governor-General should fall on his sword. Now, um, embattled former High Court Judge Dyson Hayden, um, who was embroiled in some sexual assault allegations found by an internal review to be credible mm. this week, uh, handed in his Order of Australia medal, um, you know, resigned as an officer of the Order of Australia. Um, now, I'm just, I figured, you know, given we were talking about falling on one sword before, um, even if the Order of Australia is largely a ceremonial role, here we have someone who has been in the media for doing the wrong thing, um, a high-level Australian figure um, in one of the arms of government being the judiciary. And here, um, in light of those allegations, and I'm sure after a lot of thinking on his part, he has handed up his Order of Australia and fallen on his sword. Uh, I think uh, Governor-General David Hurley could take a lesson uh, from what Dyson Hayden has done this week. And as a result, um, that's my entry into that column. Uh, who's your bad guy? Well, well, there's always plenty of people you want to you can pick as the bad guy. But look, the fellow who was the president of FIFA and the football mob who were running the World Cup made an extraordinary speech defending the Qatari government for persecuting LGBTIs and called them pit the critics of them racist. And I, I thought he must have been drunk when he said it's one of the silliest statements that I ever saw. But the facts of the matter are that Qatar should never have been given that cup. Mm -hmm. And massive money changed hands for him to get the cup. And one of the reasons why FIFA is defending Qatar is that part of the deal in Qatar giving them more money, and they've all got it in their back pocket somewhere, the deal was that they would never criticise the car, that they would do it. So those blokes accepted big bribe money from Qatar to give them that games, and now they're rushing around saying, well, we'll let them build a few gays and women and whatever. And so I, I think the football mob who run the World Cup are the world's lowest form of humanity, you know, and I'm being quite moderate. Yeah, look, uh, to, to my mind, um, and I've, I've thought about this a lot, like what's worse than someone who is like just genuinely, say, a racist, for example, is the person who isn't racist but is willing to publicly hold themselves out as racist and network with the racist for their own personal or monetary gain because they know what they're doing is wrong and yet they still do it anyway. And to me, there's just some level of moral evil that attaches to that. And it's the same with these, um, you know, with, with FIFA, because I don't think the, uh, these presidents of FIFA and that themselves are inherently homophobic, transphobic, sexist, but they're willing to uh, excuse the transphobes, the homophobes and the sexists if it fills up their pockets. And that's pretty cynical. Um, my bad guy of the week is um, YouTuber Friendly Geordies, who I'm not, a, not personally a huge fan of. His politics are close to mine, but I... You know, I just don't particularly like the guy, some of the, the way he acts sometimes, which is fine. Um, he's allowed to, have, you know, do his videos however he wants. He doesn't care what James Morgan on this podcast thinks. Um, but his house got firebombed this week 
um, by someone who, because he does a lot of investigative journalism. He did investigative journalism into, for example, John Barillaro's corruption. He's done investigative journalism into clubs, New South Wales and money laundering allegations around them. So he's made some pretty powerful enemies. And when his house gets firebombed, um, you know, when the house of an investigative journalist gets firebombed, that's always a worry. <laughs> so well, the, uh, more, than a, more than a worry, maybe mm. a flagrant abuse of the Australian way of life. I mean, if we mm. think somebody's bad, we try to get the court to put them in jail or something rather, build up enough evidence. When you firebomb anyone, that is a total, that doesn't matter how bad they are, that is a total breach of the standard by which we live in this country, isn't it? Yep. And so the, um, you know, again, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this firebombing was connected to some of the investigative journalism that it does. Yeah. And so the, uh, the friendly Geordie's firebomber is uh, my bad guy for the week. Yeah, well, and that's sad that that happened. Well, James, we've, we've covered a fair, a fair bit of, uh, hmm. of, 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 of good things. So next week, we will be able to discuss what happened in the Victorian uh, state elections. And I'd like to next week also go into one or two of the key factors in the voice referendum that I think are the ones that are going to make people vote yes or no on either side. And I'd be very interested in your opinions on them because I think this is going to increasingly come before uh, the Australian uh, public and it's an important thing to do. But it's been great to, great to chat with you, James, and then Christmas is coming on. I hope a young lad like you is not going to too many Christmas parties, eh? <laughs> Uh, uh, there's no such thing as too many Christmas parties, Everall. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I think I might have to give one of that, James. But lovely to talk to you, mate. We'll talk again next week. As always, Everall, lovely to talk to you too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ciao for now.